you probably associate alcoholic punch with a frat party concoction. Some grotesque mixture of cheap vodka, Gatorade, and God knows what else. There was a time, however, when punch was served to the cream of high society. A famous party, thrown by Admiral Edward Russell in 1694, featured a literal fountain of punch, complete with a little boy in a boat who would paddle around and ladle out cups of punch for the guests. When George Washington was first elected to the Virginia State House in 1758, he served free punch at his campaign rallies, and among those with punch recipes to their name are famous Senator Daniel Webster and one Charles Dickens. In the coffee houses and taverns of London, friends gathered around a communal bowl to share a few hours and a generous helping of punch. The wealthy would serve their punch in ornate porcelain bowls from China and used exotic ingredients like arak from India and nutmeg from Indonesia, which could make the contents of a punch bowl worth more than a year's salary for an ordinary laborer. The origins of punch, however, lay in rougher company, with sailors and merchants looking to find their fortune in the distant Orient. In this episode of Cocktail History, I'll discuss the stories behind the five traditional ingredients in punch, culminating in the story of European expansion into the Indies, where punch has its origins. Something you may not know about the famous explorers like Christopher Columbus, Vasco da Gama, and Ferdinand Magellan is that a big part of their motivation for sailing into the unknown was to satisfy Europe's craving for one of punch's key ingredients— Spices. Welcome to Cocktail History, Episode 1 Globalization in a Flowing Bowl. Punch is the forerunner of the modern cocktail. The first time the ingredients we use today met was undoubtedly in a punch bowl. Many modern cocktails are very similar to punch recipes in miniature form. Even jello shots began their not-so-illustrious history as jellied punch. We don't know the exact origins of punch, but we know it originated somewhere in the Far East and came to Europe by way of the English East India Company, a trading company that for some 250 years held a monopoly on England's trade with Asia. Punch may have originated in India as an Indian beverage, but there is no record for this. The evidence is just circumstantial. The most commonly cited story is that it was invented by East India Company merchants living in India. However, it's quite possible that it was invented by sailors, carrying goods and sometimes soldiers to and from England's trading posts in the Indies. Traditional punch is made with five ingredients. In fact, it has often been claimed that the name punch is derived from the Sanskrit word for five. These five ingredients were known as strong, weak, sour, sweet, and spices. The strong referred to hard alcohol, and original punches were made with a rock, which is a name for several different types of Asian liquor. When punch spread to the Caribbean, this was replaced with rum, and in Europe, brandy, whiskey, and even gin would come into use. 
The weak referred to water. Some recipes also used tea. Sour referred to citrus, lemon, lime, or orange juice. Citrus peels were also used, as they are today in cocktails. The sweet referred to sugar, and spices generally meant nutmeg grated over the top. Today, we generally water down our cocktails by shaking or stirring them with ice, and spices are generally delivered in the form of bitters, but the idea is the same. Later punch recipes would include other ingredients used today, such as soda water, champagne, liqueurs, and fortified wine. Each of these ingredients had their own interesting history, and their combination was the product of an increasingly globalized world, linked with the bonds of both commerce and conquest. In the 1600s, hard alcohol was still a relatively new phenomenon in Europe. The history of fermentation goes back all the way to the dawn of agriculture. As long as people have been cultivating grains and fruits, they have been using them to get drunk. Everywhere that agriculture arose, from the Fertile Crescent to China to Mesoamerica, fermentation followed soon behind, and by the time that writing was developed in Sumer and Egypt, both places had thriving brewing industries and were even importing wine from grape-growing regions. Fermentation is easy. All you have to do to get a primitive beer is to leave grain and water sitting around for a few days. Yeast will eat the sugars in the grain, and yeast basically poops out alcohol. But yeast, like most things, can only wallow in so much of its own filth. After a beverage ferments to around 15 or 20% alcohol by volume, around the strength of a Belgian quad, the alcohol becomes toxic to the yeast and it will die. So you can't ferment alcohol beyond that threshold. To get hard alcohol, you have to distill it, which is a lot more difficult. To distill alcohol, you have to heat beer or wine and collect the steam. The boiling point of ethanol is lower than that of water so it will rise before the water does. The basic technique was known in ancient Greece, India, and China, but it was used for things like perfume, not drinkable spirits. Collecting alcohol in an efficient manner is tricky, but the bigger problem is that along with ethanol, which is the drinkable alcohol, you can also get some very toxic stuff that can ruin the taste, give you a hell of a hangover, or cause serious health problems. This is the reason for Moonshine's reputation for making people go blind. There is some archaeological evidence that alcohol was being distilled for drinking in India as early as 500 BC and in China around the first century, although it probably would not become common in either place until much later. There is also evidence that Mongolian steppe peoples were early distillers, freezing and skimming fermented mare's milk to extract the alcohol. Regardless, Europe was definitely late to the party, Distillation actually arrived in Europe by way of the Islamic civilization, and was not developed until the end of the Middle Ages. In the later centuries of the first millennium, while Europe languished in the Dark Ages and battled Viking invasions, the Arab world was in its prime. Arab doctors, philosophers, and scientists were reading and expanding upon the work of the Greeks. The name Aristotle was virtually forgotten in Western Europe, but well known among Arab intellectuals. In Kufa in modern-day Iraq, Jabir ibn Hayyan invented the alembic still, a style still in use today. He has been called the father of modern chemistry, and he used his still to isolate citric and acetic acid, among other chemicals. 
Jabir wasn't looking for beverages, though. He was looking for something far more consequential. The secret to infinite wealth and eternal life. You see, Jabir, like many of the pioneers of distillation, was an alchemist, followers of a discipline with roots in Greek, Hindu, and Buddhist thought that combined rudimentary science with mysticism. They sought the Philosopher's Stone, which was supposed to turn lead into gold and grant eternal youth. While they never found it, they did find a great deal along the way, including the art of distillation. Another renowned Arab who probably distilled alcohol was Yaqub al-Kindi, a Yemenite, who published many works on philosophy, medicine, and music theory. Al-Kindi pioneered techniques for decrypting encoded messages and is also credited with introducing the West to our modern base 10 number system, which originated in India. Towards the turn of the first millennium, war and trade alike led to increased contact between the Christian and Muslim worlds. In 999, Sylvester II became the Pope. Sylvester had been educated in Barcelona, which was only recently reconquered from the Moors, and he had been part of a peace delegation to Moorish Cordoba. He was an admirer of Arab science and encouraged Europeans to begin studying ancient Greek and Arab texts. He is credited with reintroducing Europe to Aristotle and in promoting the use of the abacus and Al-Kindi's base 10 number system. In 1167, at the University of Salerno, a certain Magister Salernus demonstrated the distillation of alcohol using Jabir's alembic still. It was initially proclaimed a wonder drug and given the name aqua vitae, the water of life. This term survives in the Scandinavian aquavit, the French eau de vie, and in our word whiskey. Whiskey comes from the Scottish ushkaba, the Gaelic translation for aqua vitae. It was later shortened to ushka and became whiskey. The other name given this new liquid was aqua ardens, fire water. The dichotomy of these two names is illustrated in an anecdote from 1387. King Charles II of Navarre, known to history as Charles the Bad, was deathly ill. His doctors decided that it would be a good idea to wrap him up mummy style in sheets soaked with the so-called water of life. This came to disastrous conclusion when somebody dropped a candle on the king and poof, he burst into flames. He was so widely disliked that this horrific death was seen as God's just punishment. Perhaps it wasn't an accident after all. The average European wouldn't be familiar with aqua vitae until several hundred years after Magister Salernus demonstrated distillation. In the 1320s, the Pope declared that alchemy was heresy, and it was banned around Europe. In France, possessing a still could get you executed. In the 1400s, distillation for medical purposes re-emerged. Doctors recommended aquavitae for various ailments such as arthritis, heart disease, depression, forgetfulness, gray hair, and perhaps most ironically, headaches. Inevitably, when doctors started prescribing it, people started using it recreationally. Once it caught on, governments soon began to license and tax distillation, recognizing its potential as a revenue stream, and by the 1500s, Europeans were distilling with a passion. Monks were early distillers, and actually so were nuns. Many early distillers were apparently women. It is reported that in 1564, half the distillers in Munich were female. 
Across Europe, each region developed its own style of distilled alcohol based on the crops they had available. The French turned their abundant wine grapes into brandy. The Italians turned the leftovers of winemaking into grappa. The Spanish and Portuguese fortified their wines with aquavitae, creating sherry and port. The Poles made vodka from potatoes, the Russians from grain, while the Scots and Irish turned their grain into whiskey. The alcohol trade flourished too. At the time, they couldn't transport beer and wine well without spoiling it, but hard alcohol would keep. The Dutch shipped French brandy around the world, and the English developed a keen taste for Spanish sherry. The English also took to what they called Dutch courage, aka gin. Contact with India led to the import of Iraq at great expense, and once rum was invented on Caribbean plantations, it too joined Europe's liquor cabinet. Adding alcohol to water was a common practice, and it had been around for a very long time. It was perhaps the first method of water purification. Before modern water treatment, water was often dangerous, especially in urban or agricultural areas that didn't have proper sewage. Basically, everyone was living surrounded by poop, both human and farm animal, and inevitably it got in the water supply. Because of this, people would drink weak beer or cider instead of water, and the ancient Greeks added wine to their water to make it drinkable. Aquavitae was also a decent way to treat water, especially in ships where fresh water sitting in barrels would become foul and potentially dangerous. Citrus juice, the third ingredient in punch, had been in use for quite a while, but lemons and limes were relatively new to Europe. The lime originated in India or Southeast Asia and was cultivated largely in the Middle East. The lemon was probably a crossbreed of the lime with two more obscure citrus fruits, the citrone and the pomelo. Neither lemons nor limes were cultivated widely in Europe until the 1400s. The sweet orange, originating in China, probably arrived around this time as well. Citrus fruits were of course extremely valuable to sailors because they could treat scurvy. This seems to have been known to some captains quite early on, but for whatever reason, institutional knowledge of this wasn't widespread until the late 1700s. By that point, many thousands, maybe over a million sailors had died of scurvy. Sugarcane was first cultivated in New Guinea, and the first crystallized sugar was made in India around the year 350. It didn't reach Europe until after the Crusades. The European climate is not very suitable to cultivating sugar, and it's highly labor-intensive, so at first it was very expensive. It was not until after the voyage of Columbus that sugar was mass-produced. In fact, Columbus carried sugarcane seedlings on his second voyage to the New World. In the Caribbean, Europeans found a climate suitable to sugarcane plantations, and they solved the problem of labor, first by enslaving the native population, and then by importing slaves from Africa. It was on these brutal sugar plantations that rum was first distilled. That story will be told in a later episode, but suffice it to say that sugar was so intimately linked to slavery that British abolitionists refused to take it in their tea. The final and most expensive ingredient in the punch bowl is the most important to our story, for in the spice trade lay the reason that punch came to Europe, and the reason that Europeans took to the high seas at all. Columbus, da Gama, Magellan, they were all looking for the same thing, nutmeg. Strange as it may sound, Europeans literally built global empires looking for the contents of your spice rack.
Okay, let's give you some context. Until the 19th century, spices were the most valuable substance in the world. Grating nutmeg onto your punch was a luxury few could afford. Ostentatious Englishmen would actually wear nutmeg graters around their necks just to show the world they could afford it. Sort of like a 18th century bling. But why were spices so expensive? The reasons are numerous. The obvious one is that medieval Europe's food was bad, and I mean bad. Today, spicy food is a taste that some people enjoy, others don't. It's a preference. Back then, before refrigeration, it was a great way to make half-rancid meat or vegetables that had been sitting around in the cellar all winter bearable at all. A lot of what people were eating back then would not pass health inspection today. And while Indians could hide their past expiration date meals with curry spices, Europeans just had to deal with it. However, this alone doesn't explain the kind of prices that spices were fetching. While you could understand why people eating terrible food would go crazy for stuff like salt and pepper, the most valuable spices were actually nutmeg, cloves, and mace. Not exactly the kind of thing you would cook with every day. Like hard alcohol, spices were introduced to Europe by their doctors. They were rumored to have medicinal properties, and in the age of the Black Death, anything that might possibly cure disease was incredibly valuable. You know all those ultra-expensive New Age alternative medicines that probably don't do anything? They're a cash cow in an age where we actually have antibiotics. Imagine how valuable this stuff was back when it was pretty much all that was available. If you got sick, you could pray to God, have a doctor cut you to try to bleed the illness out, or take some nutmeg. Spices also had an erotic allure. One of the ailments they were often prescribed for was sexual dysfunction. Finally, and maybe most importantly, as with stuff like gold or precious stones, part of the value of spices was simply that they were so rare and mysterious. They were a price-signaling commodity. Adding spice to your food was like ordering bottle service. It's more about showing that you can afford it than the actual value of what you're getting. And a big part of this was their exotic origin. Until the 1500s, Europeans had only the vaguest notion of where these spices actually came from. All they knew is that they came from somewhere far to the east, a place called the Orient, which is shrouded in mystery and superstition. In our modern world, where you can see any point on the globe on Google Maps and fly to the other side of the world in less than 24 hours, we have little concept of what it's like to have huge blank spaces on your map. To medieval Europeans, India probably felt as far away as the moon to us. In fact, many believed that spices literally came from the Garden of Eden, the so-called earthly paradise. You may have learned as a child that Columbus thought the world was round and everyone else thought it was flat. Actually, just about every well-educated European knew that the world was round. Columbus actually speculated that the world was pear-shaped, and that at the tip, which he thought lay somewhere in the vicinity of India, he would find a limitless source of gold, spices, and at the very tip of the world, paradise itself. Until the day he died, Columbus believed he had very nearly reached the earthly paradise, which he thought lay just beyond the Caribbean islands he had explored. 
Later explorers in the Caribbean searched desperately for spice trees. On each new island, they would show the natives samples of cloves, nutmeg, and pepper. Eager to get rid of the menacing Spaniards, the Caribbeans would tell them something like, it's on the next island over, just keep on going, don't stay here. The spice trade with India dates back to classical times. Pepper was a regular import to Rome. Black pepper originated in India and cinnamon in Sri Lanka. Nutmeg and cloves had far more obscure origins. In a handful of tiny volcanic islands in modern-day Indonesia, somewhere between Timor and New Guinea, the root of the spice trade was indeed incredible. The nutmeg and cloves would be harvested on these tiny islands, brought by Indonesian traders from island to island, until they arrived at major ports on the islands of Java and Sumatra, or the Malay Peninsula. These ports were remarkably cosmopolitan. In a port like Bantam on Java, you could find Indonesian islanders, Malays and other Southeast Asians, Chinese, Japanese, Indians, Arabs, Persians. From these ports, the spice cargoes would be ferried across the Bay of Bengal to India. From there, to ports in Arabia or East Africa or Persia, then in long caravans across the deserts to the Mediterranean where the Venetian merchants who controlled trade with the Arab world would ferry them across to Europe. As you can imagine, each of these middlemen was taking a serious markup. Some estimates put the price of nutmeg and cloves in Europe as high as 2,000 times their price at the point of origin. Anyone who cut out all these middlemen would become fabulously wealthy. In the Dark Ages, the great sailors of Europe were Scandinavian Vikings. For the late Middle Ages, it was the Italians, like the Venetians and the Genoese. But in the 1400s, the Portuguese under Henry the Navigator began to send out ships on the high seas. They explored the coast of Africa, discovered Madeira and Cape Verde. Their search for the source of spices became all the more urgent in 1453, when Turkish cannons blasted through the thousand-year-old walls of Constantinople. Constantinople was the last vestige of the Roman Empire and the last Christian stronghold in the Middle East. Europe watched with alarm as the Ottoman Empire was spreading across the Middle East, across North Africa, into parts of Europe. The Ottomans now controlled Europe's spice habit, and the Europeans did not like that one bit. In 1488, the Portuguese reached the Cape of Good Hope at the tip of Africa. In 1498, Six years after Columbus found the New World and thought he was in India, the Portuguese actually got there. Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama successfully rounded the Cape of Good Hope and landed on India's Malabar coast. He arrived in Calicut, one of these large cosmopolitan port cities on the southwestern shore of India. The Indians managed to find a Tunisian merchant who could translate, and da Gama declared, Quote, we come in search of Christians and spices. The only Christians there, a handful of Armenian and Venetian merchants, were not at all happy to see him. Even less happy were the Arab traders. They understood he was trying to break their monopoly, and they told the Zamorin, the city's ruler, that Tagama was a dangerous pirate. He left Calicut in a bad odor. When the Zamorin denied him permission to build a permanent trading post, he kidnapped some fishermen out of spite and warned the Arab merchants that he was going to be back. In entering the Indian Ocean, Europeans entered a large network of 
relatively open, tolerant, and cosmopolitan free trade that stretched from the eastern coast of Africa all the way through the islands of Indonesia. All the peoples and religions of Asia could be found in the waters of the Indian Ocean, and while there was plenty of piracy and violence, the general policy of the city-states and nations that lay along these waters was that peace was good for business, and business could be done with anybody. This was an arrangement that was about to be shattered. In 1500, a much larger, well-armed fleet sailed from Malabar under Pedro Alvarez Cabral. On the way, they discovered Brazil by accident. The Zamorin allowed Cabral to establish a trading post. The Arabs and Portuguese were soon at one another's throats, each trying to convince the Zamorin not to trade with the other. Things escalated, eventually Cabral seized an Arab ship, and a mob attacked the Portuguese trading post. Fifty of the Portuguese were killed. Cabral responded by attacking the Arab trading fleet with his own, and massacring every Arab he could get his hands on. To punish the Zamorin, he bombarded the city with his cannons, probably killing hundreds of innocent civilians in the process. Tagama returned with the next Portuguese fleet, and this time he had explicit orders to take revenge. Here's how economic historian Nick Robbins describes Tagama's return. Quote, On his second voyage in 1502, Tagama dispensed with any attempt at negotiation. A large merchant ship bringing back 700 pilgrims from Mecca was primed with gunpowder and sunk. He then moved on to Calicut, capturing 20 trading vessels and butchering their crews. More than 800 prisoners had their hands, ears, and noses hacked off. The pieces piled into a boat and sent to the local ruler, the Zamorin, with a note telling him to make a curry with what he found. In light of these and other incidents, Niels Steingard has concluded that the principal export of pre-industrial Europe to the rest of the world was violence. In the next decades, Portugal would turn the Indian Ocean from being a realm of relatively open free trade to Portuguese territory. They sought exclusive control of the spice trade and demanded tribute from anyone shipping goods through the Indian Ocean. I should mention that at this time, Arabs, Indians, and Persians were all wealthier and more advanced than Europe. In fact, when they met in land battles, Europeans probably lost more often than they won. But the Portuguese had key advantages in naval technology that gave them an edge. First of all, they had the ability to sail all the way from Portugal to Asia and attack coastal cities. There was no threat that the Zamorin could send a ship around the Corn of Africa and bombard Lisbon. They also had better naval artillery than any of their opponents in Asia, which often allowed them to defeat much bigger fleets. They didn't have the power to hold a lot of territory. Instead, they would focus on capturing key naval positions which would allow them to hold the important waterways. Under Admiral Alfonso de Albuquerque, in the first decade of the 16th century, the Portuguese captured first Aden, which commands the mouth of the Red Sea, then Hormuz at the entrance to the Persian Gulf, then Diu at the tip of the northern Indian region of Gujarat, and then Malacca, which is at the tip of the Malay Peninsula and essentially commands the entrance from the Indian Ocean into the South China Sea. Their effort to control the entire ocean made them a lot of enemies. The Zamorin of Calicut joined together with his traditional enemy, the Sultan of Gujarat, the Ottoman Turks, and the Mamluks of Egypt in an anti-Portuguese coalition. 
The coalition was even supported by the Venetians, whose loyalty to their fellow Christians was far outweighed by the serious financial consequences of losing their role in the spice trade. But the Portuguese naval power overwhelmed them all. In 1509, the Portuguese defeated the entire coalition fleet at the Battle of Diu, and Portugal reigned supreme on the waters of the Indian Ocean. The one prize that eluded them was the Zamorin's territory on the Malabar coast. While they were able to defeat his forces at sea and bombard his city, if they tried to establish a land fort, as soon as the fleet was too far away to rescue it, the Zamorin's forces would come in and destroy it. In 1510, Albuquerque found an opportunity in the city of Goa. Uh, Goa was a predominantly Hindu city, but it had recently been conquered by a Muslim ruler. Under the pretext of liberating the city, the Portuguese captured Goa. Goa would soon become far more prosperous than Calicut, as merchants that used to stop off in Calicut now sold their goods directly to the Portuguese in Goa. The Portuguese would not leave Goa until 1961, when the Indian army invaded and forced them out. With their success on the Indian Ocean, the Portuguese headed east, seeking the legendary Spice Islands, where nutmeg and cloves could be found. Admiral Albuquerque dispatched a small expedition of three ships with some local Malays as guides. Their mission was to find the source of nutmeg and cloves. The Maluka Archipelago, which is where the spices could be found, lay another 1,500 miles east of their base in Malacca. The islands were tiny, not at all easy to find, but the Portuguese eventually made their way to the Banda Islands, a small cluster of islands in the southern Moluccas where nutmeg could be found. The Bandas, a half a dozen tiny islands in the middle of nowhere with a population of less than 20,000, were the world's only source of nutmeg. The Bandese islanders allowed them to trade, so they filled up two of their three ships with nutmeg and headed back to Malacca. The third ship, under Francisco Sarau, headed north to find the clove-producing islands of Ternate and Tidore. They got lost, shipwrecked, then stole another ship from pirates, finally ended up on the island of Ambon, which is halfway between the Bandas and the northern Moluccas. There, he and his men actually worked as mercenaries, and word of their impressive weapons and armor made its way to the powerful sultan of Ternate, who invited them to come fight for him. Sarau must have been enormously proud when he finally caught sight of the twin islands of Ternate and Tidore, each sporting massive volcanoes, their slopes covered in clove trees. The story of Ternate and Tidore would make a wonderful allegory for some sort of magical realist epic. Separated by a narrow channel, the islands almost resemble the yin and yang signs, geographically predestined to be locked in perpetual combat. Great wealth flowed to the islands as a result of their clove production, yet much of it was spent fighting one another. The volcano on Ternate, Gamma Lama is active to this day, and as recently as 2011, four people were killed in an eruption there. The Sultan immediately wanted the powerful Portuguese on his side. He was, after all, locked in a perpetual struggle with the Sultan of Tidore. 
Sarau befriended the sultan, became an advisor in his court, and ended up spending the rest of his days on the island. He may actually have died from the sultan poisoning him, but in the meantime, his relationship with the sultan got the Portuguese permission to build a fort there. As you can imagine, this did not end well for Ternate. After the sultan had died and been succeeded by his son, the son ended up getting deposed, kidnapped, and forced to convert to Christianity. His successor ended up with his head on a pike. Within two decades of da Gama's voyage, the Portuguese now had the spice market cornered. Soon they would even establish trade with China and Japan. The Portuguese empire now extended quite literally around the world, from Brazil to Ternate. Exactly how far around the world was a matter of serious consequence, though. With the sudden conquests in the west by Spain and the east by Portugal, the two countries immediately began to quarrel over who had the right to conquer where. In the ultimate act of European entitlement, the Pope resolved the matter by literally dividing the world in two. He decreed that all undiscovered lands west of a certain line belonged to Spain, and everything east of that line belonged to Portugal. Fixed by the Treaty of Tordesillas in 1494, the line placed Brazil, Africa, and Asia in the Portuguese hemisphere, and the rest of the Americas in Spain's. Since they knew the world was round, they knew the other side of the line lay somewhere in between China and the Americas. However, they had no idea what the actual diameter of the Earth was, and a lot of people still suspected that it was just a hop, skip, and a jump from the western side of Mexico to Ternate. If this were the case, the islands would rightfully belong to Spain, not Portugal. One of the people who believed this was a certain Ferdinand Magellan. Magellan was actually a Portuguese captain. He had served under Albuquerque and was friendly with Sarau. But he had fallen out of favor with Portugal's king, and he understood there was a lot of money to be made if he could prove that Spain, not Portugal, had the right to the Spice Islands. Thanks to letters from his old friend Sarau, he had key information about the islands, and he convinced the king of Spain to send him on a mission to reach the Spice Islands from the west. He wrote to Sarau saying something like, I'll be seeing you soon. He didn't live long enough to see the Malucas, though. And to the woe of both the Spanish claim and his starving crew, he discovered the Pacific Ocean is really, really large. After they successfully navigated Magellan's eponymous strait, the fleet spent 99 days in the middle of the vast Pacific with no sight of land. Magellan was killed in the Philippines, but the survivors of his expedition did make it to the Moluccas. Since Portugal was already allied with the Sultan of Ternate, naturally they made friends with the Sultan of Tidore. They purchased a load of cloves, and it was so valuable that the voyage actually turned a modest profit, even though they lost four out of five ships and 248 out of 270 sailors. Magellan's voyage was inconclusive at best when it came to the question of whether Spain had a claim to the Moluccas, but in the years to come, they would form an alliance with Tidore and build a fort there. Eventually, finding itself in a bad financial situation, Spain agreed to sell its claim to the Moluccas for the modest sum of 350,000 ducats. Portugal would have control of the spice trade for most of the 16th century. The Spanish conquest of the New World and Portugal's expansion into the East went hand in hand. 
Europe didn't manufacture much that was valuable in Asian markets. To buy spices, they needed cold, hard cash. Spain's conquest of the Americas brought a massive new influx of gold and silver to Europe, and much of that would end up being traded for spices, textiles, and other goods like tea in Asia. Between 1600 and 1800, one-third of all the silver mined in the Americas actually ended up in Asia. At the beginning of the 1500s, Spain and Portugal were the unrivaled powers at sea, but by the end of the century their dominance crumbled, surpassed by the rising Protestant powers in London and Amsterdam. Maintaining an empire on the other side of the world proved expensive, and the Indian Ocean was far too large to really control. Smugglers always managed to get through and cut in on the Portuguese monopoly. The Pope had declared Spain and Portugal the rulers of the whole world beyond Europe, yet this was only valid as long as the Pope's word was recognized as law. In 1517, Martin Luther nailed an angry letter to a church house door. Over the next century, millions of Europeans would die in the wars of Reformation, as Catholics and Protestants butchered one another across Europe. Portugal remained Catholic, and it might have avoided getting too mixed up in all this if it hadn't been for the fact that European royalty was all hopelessly intermarried and inbred. The royal families were all related, and this led to a brief period of time when Spain, Portugal, and the Netherlands all had the same ruler, King Philip II. You see, Philip was a member of the House of Habsburg, the dynasty that once ruled the Holy Roman Empire. Not to be confused with the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire was a nation in Central Europe that started with Charlemagne. You may have heard of the Habsburgs because a branch of the family would rule Austria until the end of World War I. That Archduke Ferdinand guy, remember him? He was a Habsburg. At this point, the Habsburgs had divided into two branches, the Spanish Habsburgs, who were the kings of Spain, and the Austrian Habsburgs, who ruled in Austria. However, Philip held title to some Habsburg lands in the Holy Roman Empire territory, including the Netherlands and part of Belgium. The Dutch were not fond of Spanish rule, and when the Protestant Reformation came to the Netherlands, they rose up against their Catholic monarch. Trying to hold on to the Netherlands proved an expensive and losing proposition for Spain. England, as you may recall, became Protestant because the Pope wouldn't give Henry VIII a divorce. When the Dutch rose up, England was ruled by Queen Elizabeth. She supported the Protestant Dutch against the Catholic Spanish, tensions rose, and soon England and Spain were at war. Portugal got mixed up in all this because in 1554, the Portuguese throne passed to the young Sebastian I, who was just three years old at the time. Because the European royals all married one another, King Philip of Spain was the boy king's uncle. Testosterone-fueled young men don't make the wisest monarchs, and at the tender age of 24, Sebastian decided to invade Morocco. It was a disaster. He ended up dead, his army massacred, and he left no children to take the throne. A Game of Thrones-style war of succession followed, and Sebastian's uncle, King Philip, ended up invading Portugal and taking the crown for himself. The two empires that had once divvied up the whole world were joined, but neither was in particularly good shape. 
Since Spain and England were enemies, Portugal was now England's enemy too. With England Protestant and at war with Spain, the papal edict dividing the world between Spain and Portugal no longer held currency for the English, and they started looking to get in on the lucrative spice trade. England first tried to find their own route to the Orient by going north. Getting to the Spice Islands by the routes of Magellan and da Gama seemed pretty far. Maybe it would be easier to just sail over the North Pole. This, of course, came to a terrible end, but hindsight is 2020. The quest to find the mythic Northwest Passage to the Orient would continue to the days of Lewis and Clark. I think because of global warming, it's actually open these days. Um, but along the way, a whole lot of people froze to death trying to find it. In 1577, the first English voyage to reach the Spice Islands arrived under Sir Francis Drake. Drake was basically a pirate, commissioned by the Queen to attack Spanish shipping. He crossed the Straits of Magellan and sailed up the American coast, all the way to California, pillaging every Spanish ship he met along the way. His expedition was only the second after Magellan's to successfully circumnavigate the globe, and he returned with a sizable cargo of spices and Peruvian gold. A decade later, Spain was fed up and decided to put an end to English piracy and support for the Dutch rebellion with a massive invasion. Spain prepared a fleet of 130 ships, known as the Spanish Armada, which were to carry 20,000 troops across the English Channel. They even got an official green light from the Pope. The English fleet was commanded by none other than Sir Francis Drake. Drake managed to delay the Armada by a full year with a raid on their supply port at Cadiz, giving the English time to prepare their defense. When the Spanish fleet anchored off Calais in July 1588, Drake launched a daring night attack. At midnight on July 29th, the English lit eight ships on fire and sent them sailing into the Spanish fleet. The giant armada scattered in every direction, trying to avoid the flames. It turned into a chaotic mess, and at dawn the English attacked. The Spanish fleet was crushed, and the era of Spain and Portugal's dominance of the seas was over. In the coming decades, the victorious English and Dutch would turn from allies to enemies as they formed rival merchant companies that would compete to take over Portugal's trading empire in the Indies. And somewhere along the line, punch would come to be. That story on the next episode of Cocktail History. I realized this was an episode about punch and I didn't even get to its invention. But here's a punch recipe made with the five classic ingredients, O'Doherty's Arak Punch. This punch recipe was published in 1824 in the influential Edinburgh-based magazine Blackwoods in a column called The Maxims of O'Doherty. The likely author was William Magan, an influential journalist, writer, and critic in the 19th century who later wrote for a magazine run by Charles Dickens, fought a member of parliament in a duel, and ended up in debtor's prison. At any rate, it's delicious. Last month, I celebrated the launch of the podcast by throwing a party with five different bowls of punch, and this was definitely the favorite. Here's the recipe, translated into modern measurements and published by David Wondrich in his book, Punch. In a large pitcher, dissolve two ounces of Demerara sugar in two ounces of boiling water. Add two ounces of lime juice and stir. 
Add six ounces of Batavia Arak, four ounces dark full-bodied rum, and 12 ounces cold water. Refrigerate or stir with large ice cubes and pour into glasses. Grate nutmeg on top of each. Batavia Arak is the Indonesian style of Arak made from sugarcane and red rice. It is obtainable in the U.S. under the label Batavia Arak Van Usten. For dark rum, Wondrich suggests a 50-50 mix of Smith & Cross and Plantation Barbados 5-year, and I wholeheartedly agree. The lime juice should be strained, and I strongly recommend buying a whole nutmeg and grating it rather than the ground stuff. It really does make a world of difference. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a comment and rating. You can find links to our iTunes and all of our social media at chpodcast.com. When I get around to it, I'm going to post bibliographies for each episode on the website. But for this episode, I'd like to acknowledge in particular David Wondrich's book Punch. It's pretty much the book on punch. It's packed with both history and recipes. Definitely check it out. I'd also like to recognize Spice, The History of a Temptation by Jack Turner, which tells the story of spices throughout history, and The School of Sophisticated Drinking by Kirsten Emmer and Biet Hinderman. Until next time, enjoy some punch, and remember that unlike cocktails, history is something you can never have too much of. (laughs) 